Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The 1980s and 90s presented an explosion of noir and detective fiction, led by such stalwarts as Elmore Leonard, Robert B. Parker, Sue Grafton, James Elroy, Sarah Paretsky. The list goes on. Among those first-rate practitioners was Andrew Vax, who died on December 27, 2021, at the age of 79. In his early novels, which all featured a protagonist named Burke, he established not merely a unique character with a unique background and unusual associates, but also a way to bring the public's attention to child abuse and particularly child sexual abuse. Andrew Vax hit the pavement running with Flood in 1985 and followed that novel with Strega, Bluebell, Hard Candy, and Blossom. On June 27, 1991, Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to speak with Andrew Vax while he was on tour for his sixth novel, Sacrifice. As you'll hear, he was in a very feisty mood. A quick note, during the interview I bring up David Simon's book Homicide and Vax has some choice comments to make. Homicide would go on to become the TV series Homicide Life in the Streets and David Simon would move on to develop and be the showrunner for the classic HBO series The Wire and later Treme and The Deuce. This podcast is the first airing of the complete 1991 Andrew Vax interview and was digitized and edited on January 7th, 2022. I guess the place to start is with Burke. Who's Burke? Burke is the prototypical abused child with all the abused child's hypervigilance and distrust of systems and agencies and institutions a man with a family of choice as opposed to the biological family he never had and not a private eye at all. In fact, almost the antithesis of the literary white knight. He's not a Chandler clone or a Parker imitation. He's a career criminal. What differentiates him from others of his breed is simply his over-identification with abused children and his reactions to that. In fact, you mentioned repeatedly in the books that Burke is a jailbird. Sure. But unless I missed it, uh, you're very, very foggy about when and where he served and for what. Is this deliberate? If I had done it, it would be deliberate. But in fact, I've not been foggy about it. And in Strega, his entire criminal history is read into the record, including the, the dates of the occurrences, the specific crimes, the places of incarceration. I miss that somehow. Well, would you review it for me then? Uh, essentially, uh, Burke was first incarcerated as a youth for the first time was for a shooting. After that, there were a series of thefts. After being released from prison, he did time for hijacking twice, uh, for attempted murder once, and for a variety of armed robberies. 
has a long felony criminal history. And in fact, in sacrifice, he's perfectly willing to palm off uh, phony bonds to make some money. Oh, now he's graduated to the point where he considers himself an evolved criminal. So yes, he traffics in bonds. He stings kitty pornographers. He lies, cheats, and steals as a way of earning his daily bread. Well, what makes him an interesting private eye in quotes is that he also does that kind of work undercover for uh, district attorney's office in sacrifice, certainly. Well, he's not really, again, it's a question of joining forces to achieve an objective. If you read it closely, while he purports to be working undercover for the DA's office, he's really trying to get his hands on this guy's money. So he's perfectly willing to set up a child molester in a sting and follow him and get him popped for the crime. But he also burglarizes the guy's apartment. Right. And it's as though the district attorney understands that, hence the extra delay in executing the warrant. So it's more an accommodation of forces than it is one working for the other. You also have a number of other very interesting characters. Uh, when I was reading Flood a few years ago, he lives above um, a Chinese restaurant uh, run by a woman named Mama. Reminded me of a cartoon strip uh, that I read in, when I was growing up called uh, Steve Roper. Because there was a character named Mike Nomad who was very similar, a trucker who lived above a Chinese restaurant and had well, a very well, wise woman. Burke doesn't live anywhere near the Chinese restaurant. He doesn't? No. He, he just he, goes there He a uses lot. it as an office, and so he's virtually there every day. Okay. But he lives in a loft on a floor that doesn't exist on the floor plans. Yeah. D did you know the Steve Roper cartoon at no. all? No, not at all. No. Okay. He also has a rather interesting dog. Yes, uh, a Neapolitan Mastiff. <laughs> when he says sit, what happens? Well, the dog's trained with reverse commands, as my own dogs are. For example, if you don't poison-proof a dog, if you don't teach a dog that unless the dog hears a certain word, the dog can't eat, the greatest dog dog in the world isn't going to last 15 seconds when someone throws poison meat over the fence. So my dogs are trained the same way. In this case, when Burke says sit, that's the dog's signal to attack. Okay, you also have a, a silent man by the name of Max. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little about Max? Max is silent. Max doesn't hear. Max doesn't speak, although Max communicates wonderfully well. Max is a Mongolian, not a Chinese, as most book reviewers report him, and he's a martial arts expert. He's fashioned his own way of survival in the world, just as Burke has, and they become close under combat conditions that neither of them initiated, and now they consider themselves brothers. You also have another character who doesn't appear in this, uh, Michelle, who's a uh, transsexual, and yes. she appears in the other books. Yeah, well, she appears in Sacrifice as well, only Briefly not personally, at the very beginning, just, yeah. just by communication through letter, yeah. But she's part of, uh, will she be back in future books? If there is a future book, yes, because okay. she's been working out, ever since the first book, she's been working out this issue of her sexuality and deciding on certain choices that she has to make, and that can't go on forever. You also have, in each of the books, um, central women who are very, who are both powerful and mysterious, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be Flood, Strega, or in this latest one, uh, the DA named Wolf. Mm -hmm. Where does this come from within your psyche? It doesn't. It comes from within women that I've known. I've met, in my mind, uh, a lot of women, period, and some of them are of this sort. Those who, I mean, who wants to write a book about some average schlub, whether it's a man or a woman? <laughs> right, I mean, it's a... that's true. Would you say that there's a certain feminist angle here, but perhaps to talk about a strong woman in that sense is I think it, it uh, 
women are stronger than we are, not necessarily that they can bench press more, but I've seen women and men perform under a lot of conditions. You know, I ran a maximum security prison. I was a federal investigator. I was a caseworker. I was in Biafra during the war. Seen lots and lots of conditions, and it's women who distinguish themselves in my eyes with their strength and their tenacity. So I don't know if it's feminist to just acknowledge the truth. One of the things you do is you make New York City and sacrifice uh, a very evil place to live in. Now, I've lived in New York, mm -hmm. and I find that it's almost a cartoonish vision of New York, a vision of New York as a give real me, Give me an example. Instead of talking now, give me an example of what you find cartoonish. <sighs> Name one thing in the book that you well, I, I found it. I found it so... It's so you describe the way you describe Queens and Corona mm -hmm. makes it so terrifying to even consider walking the streets. I don't find it that way. It's not a good place, but I don't find it quite that horrifying. Well, there's, there's two things to say about that. The first and most important thing is this is not a damn travelogue. These are narratives from the perspective of the narrator, and they're not intended to be objective. They're intended to give you a vision of this person's state of mind. So, if you were an abused child and every day you were tortured in the basement by a freak, okay, and I visited that basement, I might say, Richard, what are you getting so nervous about? So I don't understand that to be, you know, I don't, I don't even have a response to that. Secondly, you say you don't find Corona terrifying. Are you talking about 104th Street and Northern Boulevard in Corona? To that, yeah. And, and you, you would find nothing at all about hanging out there at night. That's what you're telling me. Well, not at night. <laughs> That's true. I, I don't mean to be argumentative, right. but... I really, if you're going to say the stuff's exaggerated or cartoonish, you're going to have to defend that to me. I worked there. I was born there. I was raised there. I've done every kind of work there is to do there. And people who do what I do don't share that view. Okay. Um, and I know it's considered real hip to not be afraid. And I'm like, uh, I don't know, not being sufficiently macho to say that I'm afraid. But fear is very smartening sort of thing. Uh, you know, when I worked in the maximum security prison, I had people say, hey, yeah, I'm nothing to this. Well, that's fine. But that's an attitude, not a reflection of reality. 2,200 people were killed in New York City last year. Think about that. 2,200. Ask somebody who lives there. Ask them what it feels like to ride the subway in New York. No one I know rides it anymore. Well, I rest my case. Okay. You know, this is cartoonish. Yeah, nobody even wants to ride public transportation. <laughs> Pardon me. I, I happened to be in New York last week. I rode the subway. There was no problem. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't ride through certain neighborhoods in certain hours. This is true. Uh, well, But, all right, um, in Midtown, in rush hour, going out to Brooklyn, pretty far out into Brooklyn in rush hour, there was no problem. Yeah, there was no problem. You're, that's some representative sampling that you're describing. You're describing a single event. You're also a man, not a woman. You're not a child. And... If you talk to people in New York City, they will describe the quality of life in that town as absolutely polluted by crime and violence. It's the number one environmental issue for New Yorkers. Not the whales, not the snail daughters, the fear that's prevalent throughout the town. Now, I'm used to criticism like this. I, my, my response to that is that that's my feeling about it. At least I'm honest and upfront about it. If you want to stand here from a perspective of living in a beautiful city and say it's all exaggerated, that's okay. But that's not my experience. Yeah, well, part of it is that uh, a part of me wants to defend where I grew up, I think. I grew up there, too. Yeah. Well, let's get back to Burke and the books about Burke. 
Some of the other members of his band of operatives, the mole, who mm-hmm. to me is a fascinating character, the prof, who's another fascinating character. What about these guys? Are they well, based on any reality? Of course they're based on any reality. Uh, you got to understand something. These books are intended to be a ground zero look. So I write about stuff before the journalists do. Strega smoked crack in 1986. The prof was speaking in rap before there were any rap records. This stuff exists way before it's reported. But the average citizen, it doesn't become real to them until they see it in the newspaper. All of these people, their character and characteristics are based upon people I've known and interacted with either positively or negatively. Yeah, you mix and match and you commingle and you composite to protect, in in this case, to some extent, the guilty. But sure, I think that the truth is in the perceptions, so that if a virgin writes a sex scene and you read it, you know something's tinny about that. You know it's not flying. And I think the reality of these characters depends on a person's life experience. Do you know who Doc Palmas is? No, no. Yes, you do. Doc Palmas is a perfect example of one of my friend's famous statements, which is that you don't know what you know. Doc Palmas wrote all the records you grew up on. He wrote Save the Last Dance for Me. Okay? He wrote a big piece of Elvis's catalog. He's one of rock and roll's premier lyricists. Okay. He's dead now. He's an old, old friend of mine. When I wrote Bluebell, I had people say to me, geez, what a cartoonish woman. There's no women like that. And one reviewer said, I've never heard of a woman like that. I showed it to Doc. I said, what do you think? And Doc said, I feel sorry for the son of a bitch. So the fact is that if these characters ring true to you, it's because you've had experiences with similar kinds of people. If they ring bizarre to you, you have not. That's it. That's the truth to it. Bottom line. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with any of the old pulp series? I mean, Doc Savage, The Shadow, and so forth. The Shadow through the radio. Mm -hmm. Not from reading it, Mm -hmm. but listening to it, yes. Uh, do you see any similarity between Burke and his band of associates and operatives and the Shadow and his band of agents? The Shadow was, uh, as near as I can remember, an extraordinarily well-educated, well-groomed, high-society member who did the right thing simply because it was the right thing to do and had a mission to fight evil. His girlfriend, Margo, was it? Margo was, yes. was another great beauty he had, was surrounded by wealth and luxury and riches, and undertook to fight the forces of evil because of his purity of heart. Similarity with my guys? No. Mm-mm. So you, you refute the charges then quite clearly that the characters or the situations are in any way cartoonish and in fact quite the reverse. This is a very realistic look of New York from the perspective of a particular individual. Look, there is no reality other than a person's perception, right. period. Okay. What I'm only, I'm not interested in defending my vision of New York. I'm not interested in defending whether characters are real or false. What I'm interested in defending is anybody dumb enough left in the world to say that the events are imaginary, that kids are not right. molested, that kids are not abused, <clears throat> that incest doesn't take place. One of my favorite stories about that is when Flood first came out, I was sent to England on a tour. And I sat there, there was a reporter there, and he met me and he said, you know, my God, how can you make up this stuff? What kind of ugly, evil, fetid imagination do you have to make up this stuff? And I tried to respond being a guest in a foreign country with some degree of uh, self-control. But a few years later, I returned to England with another book. And on the front page of the paper that day, and I remember the boy's name to this day, it was a little kid named Jason Swift. He was video sodomized to death by a gang of pedophiles who'd all just been convicted of it. It was on the front page of the British newspaper. I had the fortune to meet the same reporter. 
And I tossed him the paper. I said, my God, how could you guys make this stuff up? And he just bowed his head. I have made up nothing when it comes to those events. And anybody whose head is in the sand can't refute that. You just The body counts support it. The sacrifice deals with what they're calling ritual child abuse. Mm -hmm. And you come up with a an interesting theory that all the satanic rituals that wind up popping up in the uh, stories are all set up by the people doing it. They're interested in the child porn. They're not interested in the Satanism. Right. And it's all, it's all a cover so that nobody would believe the children's stories. Look, when a priest molests a child, do you call it Catholic child abuse? No. No. You just call it child abuse. You, call, you just call it child abuse. So let me just deconstruct it for you very simply. What these guys are is predators, and terrorism is their weapon. So the first step is to terrorize the child. You, you kill a small animal in front of a child. You make the clear point, I have total power over life and death. You wear the masks. You do the chants. You have the pentagrams and the 666s and all the rest of that crap. It does two things. One, it terrorizes the child. But two, if the child finds it within him or herself to disclose, the disclosures sound like insanity. They sound bizarre, and prosecutors get sucked into thinking they have to convict somebody of satanic abuse instead of straightforward sodomy or rape or kiddie pornography. You know, there are Satanists, obviously. There are people who practice Satanism. I don't claim to be an expert on Satanism, although I've talked with a number of Satanists and read. I don't see anything in their rituals, anything in their commandments that says you have to rape children. So... I don't think this is satanic child abuse. If child abuse were satanic, Christianity would be the cure. It just hasn't proven to be so. Is, is this all something fairly recent, or does this, uh, does this go back a number of years? Terrorism goes back to the, probably the first three people that ever got together. Right, right, but I'm talking more specifically of the use of Satanism for child abuse. It has a much longer history than journalism would have us believe. Terror is terror. Trappings change. For example, kitty pornography. When I was a kid, if God forbid you wanted to be in such an ugly business, you needed a whole ring of Confederates. You needed processors and you needed developers, okay? Now you need a Polaroid camera. You can buy a camcorder. Exactly. And do homegrown kitty porn that easy. So fax machines have changed it. Interactive kitty porn software has changed it. So it is with Satanism. There's always been terrorists around. But as Satanism has sort of gotten popular with teenagers who are in no way connected to what's called ritualistic abuse, the trappings are more available. And that's all. It's just utilization of what's at hand. We have here serious themes about child abuse in all of your novels. And uh, from the literature we've received, you've worked in, in that field quite extensively. Uh, 27 straight years, I'd say so. Okay, yeah. Uh, what exactly do you do? Now or? Now and then. I'll try and give it to you briefly. I was a federal investigator for the public health service in sexually transmitted diseases. Nobody does that job without running across child sexual abuse. Nobody. And you see it in such graphic, clear ways that there's no mythology bullshit. Like, is it a fantasy? You see a baby's rectum dripping gonorrhea, that's the end of the fantasy crap. I was a caseworker in New York City, and despite our differing views of New York City, I don't think anybody would disagree that that is the belly of the beast. And again, you see child abuse. I went to Biafra during the war. You see literally national scope child abuse. You see a generation of children removed 
from New York. I came back here. Did you want to ask me a question? About well, that? about Biafra. Mm -hmm. uh, was this <laughs> was this done out of political motives? My going there or the homicide? No, no. These these acts was this uh, act calculated? That, well, the weapon of war, in addition to the planes and the bombs and the guns, was starvation. As you know, in any kind of Darwinistic way, those less able to fend with themselves are not going to survive. Clearly, if you use starvation as a weapon of war, it's going to be the children that go. Was it deliberately calculated by one side or the other? I couldn't say. It was such a foreseeable result that I can't think otherwise. And what were you doing in Biafra? Uh, what I was doing there was mostly trying to leave. But uh, my mission was that, do you remember the war? Sure, remember? sure, okay. sure. You know, billions of dollars were raised. Okay, because unlike Ethiopia, they weren't just starving, they were being exterminated by various weapons. A group of foundations who'd raised a lot of money and who had UN consultant status wanted someone to penetrate the war zone. Because if you remember, the Red Cross plane had been shot down, there was no way in. Yes. You had to find your own, penetrate the war zone, and simply tell them, was the money that they were sending going for food, going for guns, not going there at all? That was the mission I accepted, and my qualification was being dumb enough to undertake it. And uh, what I got was a plane ticket to Lisbon and had to find my own way in. And I, I, you know, I did do that, but, you know, I didn't save any children. I mean, I, I went there with that grandiose motive, but all I did was see, as I said, wholesale child abuse. You know, after I got back, I knocked around, did some things and ended up um, running a group in Chicago that was essentially to service the migrant population from Appalachia. After that, I ran a reentry center for ex-convicts, and after that, I ran a maximum security prison for aggressive, violent youth. Where was that? The last place? Yeah. In Massachusetts, right outside of Boston, a place called Rosendale. It was the state institution for such children. It was only after that that I went to law school. So by then, I went to law school with malice aforethought. I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and that was represent children. Since then, my practice is limited to representing children, and I do it in every form you could think of. Children who've had crimes committed upon them, children who have been accused of committing crimes, children abused and neglected by their parents, children abused by institutions, agencies, organizations, institutions like that. You mentioned your experience at Rosendale in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that such institutions do anybody any good? I don't think any institution standing alone does anything. Institutions are just structures. I think that the staff, as it eventually evolved there, did some of the kids a world of good. The problem is that they were all mingled together. So we were very successful with the shooters, stabbers, and stompers. We were complete failures with the sex criminals. There's an almost cliche to the effect that so-called reform schools are really nothing but crime schools and that prisons are nothing but the graduate school equivalent thereof. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with this? I agree that they can be. I agree that to a great extent they have been. I don't agree that they must be so. We ran an institution for, quote, the worst kids in the state, unquote. And for some of them, there were significant breakthroughs and changes in behavior. And they went on, because remember, it's been many years, and I can look at them now. Yes. Uh, they went on to, hey, listen, I'm not saying that they ended up being uh, something as noble as a uh, uh, person that cured cancer or something as odious as a politician. I mean, something sort of in the middle. <laughs> But they're human beings and they're citizens. With others, we, we had no such result. 
You use the term human beings, and, and that interests me. If we can get back to your books for a moment, most particularly the current one, Sacrifice. Uh, it seemed to me that in the shady, shadowy world where Burke lives, where we have criminals and, and their enemies, I, I won't even say crime fighters, they use the term human being or citizen occasionally to refer to anybody who isn't part of their peculiar subculture. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. It's exclusionary language. It's intended to be so. They believe the world is one side or the other side or non-combatants. The other side are people they fight, the non-combatants they prey upon. There's a book I read called Homicide by David Simon about a year. This reporter spent a year with the Baltimore Homicide Squad. I, 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 uh, the book, the cover carries a blurb of mine, so I read the book. Yeah. Uh, what did but, you think of it? I think it was a, a very interesting work of journalism that involved a significant commitment. I think there was a degree of bonding with the cops that may have influenced the overall reporting. Uh, I thought that the reporter did a particularly good job pointing out the difficulties cops have and the culture of being a cop and problems with the criminal justice system. However, I was you know, mildly distressed at the fact that there wasn't one cop in the whole thing that was corrupt. There wasn't one cop that right. was brutal. There wasn't one cop that was bit. It was quite a lucky sampling he hit on. Well, he also he also makes mention that the uh, that the homicide squad will happen to have the better people in it. Uh, I mention this just simply because the cops use the word taxpayers to mm -hmm. distinguish between citizens and yeah, everyone everybody else. Does as well. Everybody finds a way to not necessarily pejoratively, although in my case it is, because when when Burke says citizen, he means the kind of people that hurt him, the kind right. of people that look the way others get hurt. Not with him. You know, with him, against him, or on the sidelines. Stand up or stand aside. I admit that his world's very black and white. But I'm tired of critics saying, well, geez, there's so many shades of gray. Well, there is for them. But I'm not pretending that what I'm writing is journalism. What I'm writing is a damaged person's point of view of that reality. You have a crusade and a cause. You have the background... Uh, to explore it in a nonfiction route. Why did you choose fiction? Okay. Very simple. My first book was a work of nonfiction. It was called The Lifestyle. See, you're giving me a very puzzled look. It was called The Lifestyle Violent Juvenile. It got wonderful reviews. It got no sales. Maybe it sold 2,500 copies. It's still on government reading lists if you're going to run a maximum security institution for juveniles. It was essentially these books with footnotes. And without the narrative style and without protagonists that could talk directly to you. I am a preacher of sorts. I wanted a much bigger congregation. I'm a working man, so I don't have access to a radio station, newspaper, magazine, TV. Books are the only way. So I went to the novels specifically with that purpose. And as far as saying I still don't write nonfiction, uh, if you read Parade Magazine on Father's Day. If you, I write nonfiction articles all the time, but my appetite to do another nonfiction book, it's not there. The audience is huge for these books and minuscule for the nonfiction text. So you feel at this point, at least in America right now, if you want to get your word across, the way to do it is through fiction. Oh, I could write a nonfiction book that would sell really well, except that I'd be violating the confidentiality of my clients. I get an offer a week minimum from TV. Oh, we want to do this show about you. We just need to interview some of your clients. They're not going to do that. 
not exposing my children to that. I'm not listening to the crap that it will benefit other children because it's not fair to make abused children take that weight. Now, they've already been damaged enough. And this idea of exposing them to media scrutiny and then they have to deal with what they've said and how they've reacted 10 years later, 15 years later is wrong. It's just morally wrong, so I don't do that. Yeah, I could write nonfiction, but then I'd be talking about sources I couldn't disclose and things that I refuse to document because I'd be violating people's privacy. So this is pretty much what I'm stuck with. There's a reference in your latest book uh, in a courtroom scene to the so-called Rulon case. Is yes. this an actual case? Oh, absolutely. Certainly. Would you talk about that? Okay. Uh, essentially, and by the way, that section of the book, yes. again, to distinguish between fantasy, the California lawyer has reprinted that section of the book, and it's in their current magazine. So the Rulon case essentially said that a little girl was going to testify at trial. The social worker to calm her down, took the witness stand, put the little girl on her lap, and the girl was allowed to testify from that position. The decision was that, you know, this polluted the process of transmitting information and the kid could have been given nonverbal signals and in any way tainted the adversarial process. So it wasn't allowed. This section of my book is to make fun of that because what the little girl is doing is sitting there and patting a seeing eye dog. Yes. There, there's another element in the book. The child who was suffering from multiple personality syndrome, I believe his name was Luke. Yes. Also known as Satan's Child and, mm -hmm. so, and Baby, Baby, Baby. Mm -hmm. Toby. Luke is that book of the Bible which says, if you harm a child, better that there be a millstone on your neck and you be thrown into the deepest sea. Have you ever encountered such a child? Absolutely. And is your feeling then that, are they just monsters? Are they beyond redemption? Is it, are they just evil or, or, or just sick? What no, can you do about like that? First of all, you're asking me to talk about a very specific area of psychiatry. Multiple personality disorder, although it has the most florid manifestations that appears to be almost demonic, is one of the most curable disorders imaginable, especially with very young children. What you seek is fusion, the melding of all these split personalities yes. into one. So, evil? That, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. Let me explain it to you this way. Let me talk about inescapable shock syndrome. Let's look at this table we've got here. Let's pretend it's an electrified grid. Place a mouse on that grid, okay? Mouse is just walking along. I press a button, the mouse gets a shock. Every place that mouse goes, he gets a shock. Eventually, when I electrify the whole grid, the mouse either sits there and dies or jumps off the table regardless of consequences. That's what a child, suffering as Luke did in this book, does in his mind. And if he's gifted enough, because you have to have quite an intellectual capacity to be a multiple, you develop another personality. So he developed more than one. One personality that was literally anesthetic for pain, to take the pain. Another to take vengeance, to be that kind of strong, impregnable sort of person. Such a person is not at all evil and not at all sick. He's damaged. But if you're asking me if a predatory pedophile is sick, that's different. Because to feel those feelings, I grant you, is sick. But to act on them, which is a volitional choice, that's evil. And do you believe that this, this uh, as in the battered child syndrome, is passed from generation to generation? No, I do not. And I don't believe the battered child syndrome is passed from generation to generation either. The evidence is overwhelming that many, many, many abused children who grow to be adults not only refuse to imitate their oppressors, but actually go in the other direction and become the, the finest parenting models you can imagine. 
It's a choice. Cultural patterns are transmitted. If your father raised you with a razor strap, you are likely to do that to someone else. But sexual abuse, for example, is not simply passed from generation to generation. There has to be a volitional choice to do it. But that's, that's the point of this book, is to demythologize. The ancients, our elders, they knew the truth. They just didn't have fancy, euphemistic words like we do. They said vampire, because what is a predatory pedophile? How does he breed? He has to feed on others, and if he feeds successfully, he replicates himself. What's a werewolf? Multiple personality disorder. They didn't have all these fancy words. Unfortunately, they knew more than us, because we get a child molester. We get a freak. We get a stylized sadist, and we say he suffers from pedophilia. Now, you know, I just addressed an organization of psychiatrists, and I said, I know a guy. This guy habitually, continually, obsessively, compulsively sticks up 7-Elevens. Now, what is he, suffering from arm robbery? And he refuses to confess. Does that mean he's in denial? I mean, when are you going to stop this stuff? Best case scenario, you're in charge of dealing with the entire issue. What do you do? I'm going to have to speak in epigrams because we don't have the hours that it would take to really go into right. this. First thing I do is I raise the stakes. Right now, it's too damn cheap a game to hurt children. It is insane. This country is nuts when it talks about a war on drugs and not a war, a war on child molestation. The war on drugs, we already lost when we're all POWs. That was right. baloney from the beginning. But a war on child molestation would reward every American. Today's victim is odds-on to become tomorrow's predator. If you're really interested in crime prevention, we put all our money in at the front end. You do not get a John Wayne Gacy, a Ted Bundy, a Charles Manson by biogenetic mutation. You get it by that inescapable shock syndrome I described. You get it by systematic, chronic, ugly child abuse. And the price of not intervening or the price of government knowing and refusing to intervene is the building of a sociopath, which is nothing more than a creature without empathy, a person who feels only his own pain. Now, when such people go ambulatory, there are big successes on Wall Street, okay? It's only when their means of self-gratification is dangerous to human beings in a physical way that we call them monsters. But serial killers, multiple rapists, they are created creatures. So the first thing we do is front end it. And the second thing we do is raise the stakes at the back end. Now that's very broad, but that's exactly what I'd do if I was in charge. And what it would do is satisfy the humanitarian instinct in some of us and in all of us appeal to our self-interest. Every single one of us. In these books, uh, Certainly in, in uh, Sacrifice, and as I recall in several of the earlier ones, uh, we have Burke pursuing uh, uh, a child molestation case in one mm. form or another, right. coming to the end and building into a giant, uh, pardon the expression, sort of Mickey Spillane-esque apocalypse at the end with um, heavy fire from weapons and all sorts of being... Um, uh, violence and explosiveness going on. In the case of the latest one, we even have a man in a sort of strange makeshift flying device. Mm -hmm. uh, is this deliberate and, and by calculation on your part? It's difficult for me to answer the question because I disagree with its premise. As for the last book, you have described it with utter accuracy, and I'll be happy to address that in a second. But I know the books. I wrote them. The endings, tell me the ending of Hard Candy. Where's the apocalypse? Where's the explosion? Where's anything? You'll have to uh, pardon me because I have read these a long no, no, time ago. I have not read all six I'm far, anyway. I'm far more familiar with the books than, than anyone else could be expected to be. 
but I, I simply disagree with what you're saying. Burke is a person who won't even use an automatic weapon because he's afraid it'll jam. This last book was a departure for a lot of reasons because it's a much more mythical, metaphorical book than the other ones. But you're confusing a straightforward assassination for money with a shootout at the OK Corral. And indeed, the point that's made in this last book, I mean, I, I don't know, it's not a mystery, so what do I care if I give away the ending? What happens with this explosion of violence? Who ends up making the ultimate sacrifice in that book? The child. An innocent child. So what am I really saying? That that's the answer? Of course not. That's the whole point. I have built it up and built it up so when you finally have over six books, this cataclysmic explosion with people flying through the air, Burke entered that house to kill his past. Yes. He didn't enter that house to protect the child. And what he ends up doing is resurrecting him. That's what he got for his violence. People say to you, you know, think Burke is effective as a vigilante. He's not effective as a human being. He is a voice. He's a narrator, but he's not a hero. Were you intending on this sort of apocalyptic ending when you began Flood? No, I never thought that there'd be a second book. I haven't got that kind of ego. I thought it'd be my one shot, which is why Flood is an overwritten, flabby book compared to the others. I wasn't sure I'd get another time in the ring. You mentioned earlier on that the question of a seventh Flood book is very iffy. What are your plans then? I don't have any except to, you know, the, the movie's in production now of Bluebell. I got to see what happens. Bottom line is if they do a decent job with the movie, I'm probably done with the books because I will have escalated the size of the audience. This is America. More people will see the crappiest flop of a movie than will read the biggest bestseller. I know that. Once I won, it was the big audience. However, if they screw it up, then I'm going to be writing another book just to sort of some way to compensate myself emotionally. So I'm, I'm kind of waiting. I'm in a holding pattern. Who is making Bluebell? Paramount. Do you know anything about... I can um, tell you the producer's name please is, do. is David yes. Picker. Director? No idea. Screenwriter? Uh, I don't want to say this person's name. I, the script is in my suitcase in the car as we speak. I, don't, I literally don't want to say his name because okay. unless I'm happy with the script, at which point I would tell everybody his name, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say it now. If it turns out I'm unhappy with it, I would prefer, instead of doing public nonsense, deal with this human being directly try and resolve my difficulties with him and hopefully have him disappear. Mm -hmm. Anything about the cast? I haven't got a clue because the deal is script, then director, then cast. I have certain guarantees in the contract. So Max is going to be an Oriental, you know, and Pansy is going to be an actual Neapolitan master. Right. I have those kind of controls. Uh, I have guarantees that, you know, a Roman Polanski can't be involved with the film. But I don't have script approval. I don't have, you know, final cut. And I acknowledge that even with the contract that we wrote, you could have a movie that's not insensitive, it's not gross, it's not exploitive, but it still stinks. So stay tuned. Bluebell never made it to the big screen. And to date, none of Andrew Vax's works have been adapted for either film or television. At the time of his death, Andrew Vax had written a total of 18 Burke novels, culminating in Another Life in 2008, nine additional novels, five collections of short stories, nine more comics and graphic novels, along with three plays. Richard Lupoff and I would interview him once more in 1995 while he was on tour for his novel Footsteps of the Hawk, and eventually I'll digitize and post that. This interview with Andrew Vax, who died on December 27, 2021, 
was recorded in the KPFA studios on June 27, 1991, with my co-host for Probabilities, Richard A. Lupoff. It was digitized and re-edited on January 7, 2022. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.